for Tuesday Home Time and I'm Jan Bartlett to six. Fight back in Malaysia and overseas against the approval of the Linus Corporation's Environmental Impact Assessment regarding the radioactive waste dump in Malaysia. I'll be speaking with Natalie Lowry, who's the coordinator of the campaign for Aid Watch here in Australia. Part two of the history of Brazil post the brutal coup which ended in 1985 with thesis student, broadcaster and activist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. Bob Phelps on the trail of herbicide companies and pressuring governments to do the right thing regarding these companies for both the environment and the population. Jim McElroy looking back on a year of JobKeeper, who benefits, who didn't and what does the future hold and the International Independent Philippines Human Rights Probe. The first report was presented to the International Criminal Court last month. I'll be speaking to the Chair, Peter Murphy. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when just as our big, big polluter AG Hell for You was doing its bit for the environment, what thanks did it get? the bloody state socialist government KOs its plans to build a big, big new polluter on Western Port Bay, and from there to link with the gas pipeline. The government decision based on an environmental effects study report that pouring chlorine into pristine, ecologically fragile Western Port, among similar environmental little problems, might just cause a little bit of damage when AG Hell2's own experts told us it would have no effect at all. Or, as they all say, the environmental impact will be minimal. A truly brilliant economic plan to import liquefied natural gas in ships, passing ships, exporting liquefied natural gas from the world's biggest exporter of LNG. Capitalism is so logical, isn't it? The biggest surprise, and we can be sure AG held to, would have been as surprised as anyone, that an environmental inquiry into an anti-social proposal was rejected. It's a near first, a near miracle. The small fact that there were thousands and thousands of selfish anti-progress objectors and a magnificent local campaign opposing AG Hell 2 worked for once, because usually that counts for naught against those who believe in progress corporate style. To make matters worse, the project was rejected on the very day AG Hell 2 announced a major new environmental initiative by mathematical environmentalism. Well, the mentalism bit, dividing one into two, one company with two sensible names. New AG Hell 2, for those parts of the company in retail and working on clean energy projects, and its big, big polluting coal-fired power stations and fossils generally in another division known as Prime Co., See, very smart that, for in other words, the big, big polluter doesn't even have AG Hell 2 in its name anymore. No one will know or remember. And just when it was prepared to celebrate by adding another big, big, big polluter to Prime Co., the bloody government knocks it back. 
one of the more interesting sidelines, seeing the, the proposal was in the seat of Health Minister Greg Hunt for vaccines and good luck, Greg and the state caring business class party joined the community, including the local indigenous community, in opposing the proposal. Interesting given Greg is a senior minister in a government whose energy policy is predicated on a gas-led recovery. Personally, I was thinking of a Greg Hunt for recovery, Greg told us. Uh, so you don't support your government's fossil-led recovery. Don't put words in my mouth. I didn't say that. Of course I do. It's just a matter of where the fossil-led recovery occurs. Like not in your backyard. Well, well, not in my electorate. I was encouraged by two letters to the editor in Thursday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Not because one celebrated the AG Health U rejection, the other critical of private companies receiving millions in performance bonuses when the public transport system was near enough to empty during the heights of COVID, they mostly didn't have to stop. Encouraged, celebrating that they were in there at all, because it meant there, were, there are at least two whopping sin readers who don't rely solely on Lord Rupert for their versions of news or their Lord Rupert's version of what is and isn't news. Because if these two scribblers relied solely on the Lord Rupert of whopping sin, they would have had no idea of either of those items. The whopping sin chose to ignore them didn't think the rejection of a proposal for more pollution by the state's giant polluter worthy of even a lie. How sad in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin that its stablemate Skyline News is selling a, setting up a uh, Melbourne bureau in the Lord Rupert South Bank headquarters, telling us it is an investment in quality journalism which will ensure the delivery of even richer content for viewers. But I reckon the only very richer will be Lord Rupert himself, and given the only presenters named are the usual Skyline suspects, Andrew Bolt through the head, Peter Credlin Bulldust, Ed Al, they didn't tell us who was going to present the quality journalism, which at least would be something entirely new for Skyline. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Anthony Albinguzi, declared Trublawazi's biggest foreign ownership issue was a Chinese company owning the port of Darwin. Um, why is that, Anthony? Because it puts them too close to our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world's military base in the same area, the thousands of US of Marines protecting Trublawazi. Uh, from the Chinese. I didn't say that. Speaking of a fossil-led recovery, Big Supremo scuttled them more, Lash Sun, a.k.a. Scummo, was seen battling powerful winds and lashing rain, attempting to re rearrange the deck chairs as he went on a women-led recovery while retaining Maurice Payne in there as Minister for Women, where she has been such a roaring success by doing absolutely nothing. Which, given is infinitely better than Maurice doing something. Perhaps she does take the job seriously. And for his troubles, poor Scummo copped a blast from the true blue Aussie of the year, whose appointment he so lauded but a few weeks ago. Grace Tame declaring cruelly, a distraction posing as a solution. Scummo said he couldn't share those views. I bet he can't. And Betty wishes he hadn't shared a stage and so praised her just a few long, long weeks ago. 
hope Grace doesn't think the women in cabinet are a bunch of arch-conservative duds, because the week that was certainly wouldn't say that. Based on the experience of a couple of Scuttle Them's male colleagues, I suggest unions should fight for accused leave. Because obviously the government believes that if you're accused of, and in one case admit, sexist, possibly criminal behaviour, you have a right to paid leave from your onerous job of sitting on the plush seats. Except a worker accused of the same activity would be in the slot by now. The appointment of a woman to improve women's financial positions got off to a big start by slashing the income of single mums and unemployed women to somewhere in the nether regions of poverty. It's all downhill from here. Easter. And we mentioned last week the resurrection of our very favourite woman chosen on merit and not quota, Sophie Maura Bellicosa. As a fair work trooper was he no longer work choices, just looks like it commissioner. Thankfully for only 13 years. With Sophie getting into the Easter spirit as she presided over a case between a caring employer and an evil trade union, which claimed the caring employer owed its members millions and wouldn't budge on a new enterprise agreement demanding slashes to wages and conditions. I find the evil union guilty. Sophie declared, making the difficult Sophie's choice between the parties. Uh, but, but, the evil union butt-butted. Well, we haven't even presented the evidence, for the case hasn't started. You are an evil union. You represent lazy, avaricious workers. That is all the evidence I need. Sophie displayed her judicial wisdom. Uh, but, but on that logic, we can never win a case. Exactly. The simple solution is stop being a union and stop brainwashing workers to oppose sensible proposals by their caring employers. The solution is in your evil hands. But, but, no more but-buts. Take them to the nearest hill and crucify them. Uh, but, 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 crucifixion was banned centuries ago. Well, in most places. Rubbish. Evil unions and their brainwashed members crucify poor caring employers every day. Well, how else can we execute them? She asked the clerk. Uh, Commissioner, uh, capital punishment also ended, uh, well, a long time ago. Now, this is outrageous. It, it limits the options available to me. And capital punishment is the very basis of evil unions and their brainwashed members crucifying poor caring employers every day. They demand that they receive some of the capital that by right should go to their caring employers and the invaluable shareholders. Evil unions robbing mum and dad investors from what is rightfully theirs. Surely being provided with work with a life, is reward enough without wanting to steal from the caring employer, on top of which they expect costly crippling conditions that further crucify those who provide them with work through the goodness of their hearts, who make their lives worthwhile. Sophie said she would lobby the government to reintroduce crucifixion. I can't work with one hand tied behind my back, she complained. We have for decades both hands tied behind our backs. The evil union showed their contempt of court with a pathetic retort, prompting Sophie to charge them with same and lock them up indefinitely. Imagine anyone having contempt for Sophie Mora Bellicosa. As they were thrown into a cell, the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers said they expected support in their case from the Socialist Party. 
they won't thrice deny us, they said. The Socialist Party itself was meanwhile holding its national conference to decide on the progressive policies it would bring to the next election to make the lives of those workers so much better. Really progressive socialist policies like, um, like, uh, well, like, um, oh, oh, look, look, we'll hold our expert opinion on that until next week or, or the week after or even maybe oh, good afternoon. Well, after all that, I hope he remembers us for the program next week. And that was Mr. Kevin Healy. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel, and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. More than 650 submissions were sent to Malaysia in recent weeks calling for the rejection of the environmental impacts assessment submitted by the Australian Minus Rare Earth company for its radioactive waste dump in Kwantan, Malaysia. This action was organised by AidWatch here in Australia and I spoke with the campaign coordinator Natalie Lowry. Natalie, opposition to the Linus plant in Malaysia is just one of the myriad of campaigns carried out by AidWatch since its inception back in 1992. A lot of water has gone under the bridge but can I ask you first why, by whom, that organisation was established back in the early 1990s? Yes, yeah, so AIDWatch was set up in 1992 by some activists in Sydney. Um, it was actually the former Green Senator Lee Rhiannon, another young woman at the time called Carol Sherman. I guess they were observing sort of inter- international financial institutions um, and Australians' aid overseas. And they were starting to realise that some of the developments and projects, you know, had some issues, particularly in our region, in the Asia-Pacific region. And so they decided to set up AIDWatch. And um, I think actually back then it was the Keating government and uh, the Keating government said, oh, AIDWatch is just two women sitting in a lounge room with a laptop. And I think that's pretty much the quote. I think it's quite, <laughs> quite sweet. So, yes, so they... Um, and, and I think one of the most important things in thinking about why they set AidWatch up is that at, at the centre of it was very much around international solidarity. So understanding that there was communities in the Global South, movements in the Global South, movements of um, liberation, um, where I guess, you know, Australia was playing a role through aid, trade and development that was um, marginalising some of these communities even more. They realised that we, I guess, in Australia had a responsibility to hold the Australian government account 
Um, and also uniquely, because AGUT became the sort of independent monitor, it was also like all the other aid agencies, it wasn't wasn't going to take money from the government. So it meant that it could be um, a lot more critical, push the boundaries a little bit more around these issues. Were there similar organisations in other first world countries? I'm not so sure actually. There could have been small organisations that um, did, did exist around that time, but um, I was I was probably a young woman then, so um, yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure uh, if if there was. I mean, I know there's been you know sort of aid watch. There's an aid watch in Canada, but it's quite distinctly different, I think, to what aid watch Australia is about. Um, and you know, they were they were young women then. They were activists. Certainly wasn't about building a a massive NGO. <laughs> um, you know, the organisation has remained small and independent throughout that time. What was your background that drew you to this organisation? Originally came on to the Committee of Management, which is the sort of, you know, volunteer, like, like a board, but we're volunteers um, to support with governance and strategic direction of the organisation. And I came in around 2014 and, yeah, was one of the, what, the committee members, I guess. In that time, I actually ended up going overseas to do my master's. And when I came back, um, AidWatch didn't really have a worker. It was struggling. And, and with the rise of neoliberalism, small organisations like AidWatch, particularly through the Howard years, they managed to survive and, and, and keep going. But um, it, it's always meant that it's been small. Um, it's hard to have found sort of funding or any kind for projects and things that we might be working on, campaigns, advocacy uh, within Australia. And I guess a big part of what AGOTS relied on was a membership and supporters and, and donations to be able to survive. So at that point around 2016, was a, it was a bit of a how do we keep AGOTS going that has a really important voice. I sort of moved out of the committee of management um, to sort of take one day a week to see, if, you know, where we could get the organisation to go from that point on. So that was about the end of 2016. And what did you envisage? Um, at the time, really, was just the, you know, the survival of the organisation and the great name that it had. I'd previously worked at the Mineral Policy Institute, which was also another small organisation that really had an important voice and role in Australia in you know, particularly looking at Australia's role overseas um, with sort of development and, and aid and trade. So I knew it, it really did have a valuable voice. And so for me, it was like, okay, how do we keep AidWatch in there? How do we keep it functioning? So a lot, a lot of the initial kind of work I was doing was really kind of looking at its governance and having to think about where AidWatch is placed now when the aid lens had started to become very narrow. Um, aid in Australia, Australian aid, um, was focusing really on national interest and security and not really on alleviating poverty in our, in the global south. And, you know, really, I guess in a sense what aid should be set up for, which is not <laughs> basically giving money into the global south to open the door for our corporations, particularly mining corporations. But also, um, there's been, you know, been a rise in the militarisation of Australian aid 
over the years as well. Well, I know you say you, you've remained small, but I dare say that you've had a few pebbles and a few shoes with both governments and corporations over those years. Yes, I mean, I think one of the most significant parts of AidWatch's life was the um, AidWatch, known as the AidWatch case, in which AidWatch's charity status, the DGR status, um, which allowed for donations to be tax deductible, was removed because the Australian government basically wanted to challenge us as that we were a, like a political organisation. And so that was a really big fight. I wasn't in the organisation so much at that time, but was very aware of what was going on. What it actually meant more broadly, because AidWatch is set up under the sort of environmental organisation of DGR, and what that meant for other organisations for our DGR to be taken away. And so AidWatch went down a, a very strong line and um, and actually fought that in the High Court and won and set a precedent in Australia because really over the last many years now um, since that case, so I think that was uh, maybe 2000 and, 2010 or 2009 when that was sort of that that era was finished and we we won successfully in the courts and were able to get our DGR status back. Australian governments, particularly the you know the Liberal Australian governments, have really tried to bring this up again and remove the DGR status from you know organised, particularly grassroots organisations that are critical of the government. And fortunately, because of the Aid Watch case setting a precedent, it's been um, a really great campaign tool to to cite and use for that not to be repeated again. So I think that's a really very proud part of Aid Watch's history. Yeah, really important one to to recognise um, that this tiny little organisation managed to, you know, fight off really being uh, pushed around by the Australian government. Just talk about maybe two of the campaigns, Natalie, that you've been personally involved with, and and whether they were victories or their ongoing campaigns. I think you know there was a bit of a shift when I came on to Aid Watch, in part because. There was a narrowing of the aid lens, and as much as we still have a, a you know, we are critical of the Australian aid program, um, and we try to really, you know, monitor it and analyse what's going on. Um, it was very obvious that this sort of aid lens was narrowing, and that we needed to sort of broaden our narrative as an organisation. And so part of that was to look at what I guess we call development aggression in the region that is through Australian interests, particularly Australian corporate interests. One key campaign that we've been working on is with uh, frontline communities on the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea, which is one of the last pristine rivers in the world, in which they um, there is a, what was an Australian company, is now Chinese-owned but still registered in Australia, want to build one of the largest mines on the, in the headwaters of the Sepik River. So one of the legacies of AidWatch's work has been working in Melanesia, particularly around uh, Melanesian customary land rights. Um, so this was sort of very much, you know, in, in the ilk of the work we've done. And I think the work that we've been able to do with Project CPIC in the broader, what is called the Save the CPIC campaign, is a really strong collaboration where we, you know, amplify the amazing work and movement on the ground which is obviously trying to stop this mine from going ahead. But more broadly, 
it's a it's a decolonial narrative, particularly within Melanesia, about their own governance structures, their own knowledge systems um, on how they have lived on their lands, their waters, and their oceans for thousands of years. So it's challenging the Western development sort of ideologies and about their own forms of development and governance that are truly sustainable of their natural resources. I remember a few years ago you spent a few days in a jail. I think it was in Malaysia, (laughs) wasn't it, for your pains? Yes, so um, this is sort of prior to me being at AidWatch, but AidWatch had always been um, a strong supporter of what is called the Stop Stop the Linus campaign. So Linus Corporation is an Australian rare earth miner. They have a mine in a pretty remote part of Western Australia to mine what is called rare earths. And rare earths aren't necessarily rare. Uh, One of the minerals that, I guess, the mining world um, are calling so-called critical minerals. So the minerals for a so-called green transition. What was happening was that Linus was mining the ore here, but it had negotiated um, behind closed doors in Malaysia to build the world's largest rare earth refinery um, in a small town, town on the coast in Malaysia called Kuantan. Um, And what came to light was that the committee in Kuantan had no idea this was going ahead. So this huge plant, which the byproduct is thorium and radioactive waste, was pretty much being imposed in this community with no social license. I guess myself and another colleague here who actually was born and bred in Kuantan but is Australian, we were like, we have a responsibility here to support the movement on the ground in Malaysia. And so since 2011, we have been supporting Malaysians coming to Australia to try and lobby here, to try and build public awareness. But of course, on the ground there, they were building a very strong movement for Linus to leave the country. Um, so in 2014, I was invited over to work with the, you know, just sort of be on the ground and, and see the the Linus Advanced Material Plant, this, this various refinery, um, with the movement there called Hempenand Hidjal, who had done extraordinary things on the ground, mass moving across, movement across the country, that tied in with the birth of movement, which was the democracy movement in Malaysia that, that you know, still exists. And so part of that was they mobilised about a 1,000 people to have a peaceful protest at the front gates of this refinery, of the Linus refinery. Through that time, the police became very violent. And, you know, I witnessed people getting beaten up and one of the community leaders chose to sit on the ground. And I chose, along with 13 other Malaysians, to sit with him in a peaceful action of solidarity, um, which resulted in me getting arrested <laughs> and, and spending, I think, seven days in jail in Malaysia. But thanks to incredible solidarity across Malaysia and also internationally, I was released and then and then came back to Australia. But unfortunately for my Malaysian friends and for the movement there, it's been a very big struggle to really hold Linus off and now we're in a, another phase of working around this issue in which Linus been submissions towards the Linus environmental impact statement around a basically a waste disposal, a radioactive waste disposal project that they want to put um, in another area. Um, it's actually a forest area 
it's really close to a big water catchment. So clearly it's just another case of Australian legacy of dumping um, radioactive waste in the global south. And the battle goes on. The other issue that you've been involved with a lot over the last few years is the undersea mining. How is that progressing now? Yes, so the issue around deep sea mining, which uh, under the deep sea mining campaign, so another campaign I I am really lucky to be working with. Um, For the last decade, we have been focused particularly on working uh, with frontline communities in the Pacific because the Pacific is the area where um, there is millions of square kilometres of um, exploration leasehold to mine our deep seas. So it's been a long road, but the industry hasn't started. Um, And what's really incredible in the last week is the Pacific regional space So leaders, churches, civil society have basically made a stand with what they're calling the the Blue Line Statement, where they are calling for a ban on the deep sea mining, not just in the region, but globally. So you had the head of the Pacific Conference of Churches, you had the Prime Minister of Tuvalu, um, the Shadow Minister in Vanuatu, as well as civil society across the region, um, including some of our partners in Papua New Guinea and Tonga who um, spoke up really strongly last week to say we don't want this in our region. So that's really significant and on an international level there just seems to be a lot more awareness around this industry. But we have a lot of work to do. The industry is particularly aggressive. It's um, also using this narrative that we need to mine our deep sea ocean beds that we know very little about. We know very little about these ecosystems but they believe we need to mine it for this green transition, which we believe is completely untrue. We don't need to um, open up another form of extractivism, and we definitely don't need any more pressure on our oceans that are already threatened by so many other issues, the overfishing, pollution, um, acidification through climate change. So it's become a, a, a pretty significant campaign now where there's a lot of people calling for this to not go ahead. And if people want to follow up on this issue and many others that you're involved with, what's the best place to go to? Well, I welcome people to visit the AidWatch website, AidWatch, A-I-D-W-A-T-C-H dot um, And you can kind of follow, I guess, we're, the direction we're going in. So we are definitely looking at, you know, Australia's role in development aggression in the region. We're also looking at the sort of greenwashing of extractivism, particularly in this space of transition and the climate movement and also you know we continue and this stems right from the day that AidWatch started is this you know we're centered in justice and international solidarity and we believe that's really important as Australians when so much of our investment you know our foreign policy in this region is not always informing good things. Okay Natalie and thanks to Natalie Lowry, the campaign coordinator with AidWatch, and also thanks to her dog, who contributed from the backyard. This is 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, streaming at 3cr.org.au, 3CR digital, podcasting or audio on demand. Interested in mental health issues? Then tune into Brainwaves every Wednesday at 5pm. Brainwaves is a peer-produced and presented program addressing issues that may affect you. 3CR, inclusive radio, making your voice heard.
the media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Now this second and final part of my interview with Lisa's student broadcaster and activist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, looking at the history of Brazil post the end of the brutal military dictatorship last century. Explain how Dilma Rousseff was got rid of in 2016. I think this is the turning point in Brazil. She first won election in, uh, her first election in 2011, again by quite a considerable margin, almost 60%, I believe. She, she didn't have a comfortable majority, and that's why, and this is part of the problem, she had to enter into coalition with a number of smaller parties, some of which belonged to the right. But nonetheless, um, the Workers' Party was still dominant in the Congress. By 2013, you begin to see the rumblings of, of what might be a coup. So you have these quite large middle-class protests taking place in numerous cities in Brazil, calling Rousseff, you know, corrupt, calling for, for the Workers' Party to get um, thrown out of office. These protests in some cities like Fortaleza in the northeast, they turn violent. You have them attacking police, you have them attacking supporters of the Workers' Party. But then it sort of, uh, it dies down after that for a few months. And then in 2014, we have Lava Jato, or the car wash case. This is the infamous car wash case. And essentially what that was, an investigation into the supposed corruption of Petrobras, which was the uh, Brazilian state-owned oil company, and Odebrecht, which is a Brazilian company. So they essentially had said, or, or the judges, who, who we now know were incredibly biased in their, in their prosecutions of Lula and Dilma, they basically said that Dilma Rousseff had essentially bribed members of the Petrobras board, of the state company's board, to allow the Odebrecht construction company to win licenses and win contracts for oil wells and for building infrastructure. They also implicated quite literally hundreds of Workers' Party and other, and other political figureheads in corruption cases and bribery scandals, um, all linked either to Petrobras or to the Odebrecht construction company. At the time, you know, at the time, this begins to, to generate um, a little bit of support, even amongst people who may have traditionally normally supported the Workers' Party. Of course, corruption is a very, is a very thorny issue in Brazil. Uh, people do not like it. They do not like to tolerate it. So when you have these accusations from a judge who was, who was respected, who people thought they could trust, and this is Sergio Amoro, who's a right-wing fanatic, he says she should either be impeached and removed or she should be in jail. 
and the same goes for Lula. Lula should be in jail. And of course, in 2018, Lula does go to jail as a part of these investigations. And Dilma Rousseff in 2016 is impeached by the Brazilian Senate. And the key, the key thing here is you have the opposition plus some of the coalition members of the Workers' Party government. And Michel Temer, who comes from a minor centre-right party and was Dilma Rousseff's vice president in, the, in, the sec, in her second presidency, he, his vote is one of the deciding votes, and he votes to impeach her. So she's removed from office, and Michelle Temer becomes an unelected interim president for two years. So she's removed. You have all of these individuals being either implicated in, in bribery scandals or arrested. Lula is arrested in 2018, and it came out literally a few weeks ago. The Supreme Court has thrown out all of Lula's corruption charges. They've said the entire uh, car wash case was a farce. It was politically motivated. The judge was being unfair and biased. And we have recordings of, of Sergio Moro, this chief prosecutor, actually trying to convince other, other Supreme Justices to vote to keep Lula in jail and to vote to keep the corruption charges, even though there's no evidence. And there's even suggestions of bribery that he might be able to, to give them money as well. So it's, it's a totally corrupted process. It has no legitimacy whatsoever. Maybe the Odebrecht company was corrupt, um, you know, has been implicated in other countries, Peru and Chile. Chile and Argentina, for example. But the truth is, we just don't know. And I, and I would not trust, I would not trust what they say about this. We know it was completely false with Lula. It was completely false with Dilma. That was just an excuse to get rid of the, um, the Workers' Party from power. And yeah, it's, it's just been a legal coup. It's been a legal and a constitutional coup. It led the way for Jair Bolsonaro. Where did he come from? Up until 2018, Jair Bolsonaro is irrelevant. He was a, a minor senator um, he held his place for 30 years, never really achieved anything. He comes from a, a rural area of the South, always been conservative, always been, you know, this really sort of petulant, cruel individual. But no one particularly cared. He had no power. He, he was an independent, really, for a long time. And then during the 2018 election, you have the, the Michelle Temer government, the unelected government, uh, in crisis. You know, they reintroduce a lot of neoliberal policy. Uh, the economy begins to nosedive. People are fed up with what is a coup. A lot of people in Brazil recognise that it's a coup. And you, you have protesters taking to the streets. E even the Rio Carnival in 2016 was a, like a neoliberal vampire themed as a direct critique of Michelle Temer and the elite who had unseated the Workers' Party. And in 2018, Lula says he's going to rerun. He says, we need to turn the country around. Uh, we need to get back on track. We need the Workers' Party back in power. And we need to finish our mandate and finish the projects we began. And, of course, this terrifies the Brazilian elite, because I think by this point, Lula has also become uh, become more radical. And even particularly after he goes to jail, um, and we'll get to that, he, he gets even more radical in his, in his perspectives on the issues in Brazil and also regional issues as well with the United States and other countries in Latin America. And what happens is the judges, or Sergio Moro and his allies, essentially dredge up the corruption conviction. So previously it had just meant that Lula couldn't run in politics, but he was actually approved that Sergio Moro ends up dredging up this, this conviction in the um, Lava Jato case, says he's going to jail. The Brazilian the justices agree, and he's sent to jail in Curitiba, in, the southern, in a southern city, for a year, over a year almost. Fernando Haddad, who's another Workers' Party politician, takes over the campaign literally a week before the election. So all of these changes imposed by the Supreme Court take place a week before the election. Now, this is obviously political. They want to get rid of the main face of the Workers' Party and they want people to just turn away at the last minute because Lula's not in charge anymore. And, uh, and that's what happens in a way. 
Fernando Haddad doesn't enjoy the same um, profile. He doesn't enjoy the same visibility that Lula does. And what you have is Jair Bolsonaro, who's chosen to be the candidate of the right wing. Almost all of the right wing parties coalesce around him and create a coalition. This is a perfect example of what capital and the elite do in a time of crisis. They try to get um, these really authoritarian violent regimes in power that won't be afraid to defend their interests with bloodshed. And that's exactly what Bolsonaro is. Really sadly, he won by, I think, quite a significant amount in the election. I think 15% or something, 15, 20%. He's horrible. Brazil has become a nightmare under him, particularly with coronavirus. You know, as we've said, he's a racist, misogynistic, homophobic, anti-Indigenous politician, rampantly neoliberal in his economic thought, loves the military dictatorship that tortured and killed so many people. He even held a public commemoration for Pinochet, the Chilean dictator, last year at the Brazilian presidential palace. Um, He's a really, really sick individual. But he's defending capitalist interests in Brazil, at least for now. But he's also unpredictable, and this might end up being a mistake on the part of the Brazilian elite in trusting Bolsonaro, because you do not know what he's going to do. As we know, Bolsonaro and Trump, they were buddies. They loved each other. Particularly Bolsonaro had this weird obsession with Trump. Bolsonaro was the first Brazilian president since the dictatorship to visit the CIA and the Pentagon when when Trump was in charge, which is just a complete act of civility to Washington. It was really quite embarrassing for a lot of Brazilians. And he also sold the Alcantara military base in southern Brazil to the U.S. military, to Southern Command. So again, here we see he's selling off Brazil's sovereignty, he's selling off Brazil's assets. Biden, it seems at first that there's that there's been a bit of bit of tension between Biden and Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro has bought into the whole Trump narrative of Biden being somehow being a communist or somehow being, you know, part of this this globalist world order. Bolsonaro also doesn't like the fact that the Democrats are maybe a little bit more willing to criticise environmental policy. So he's definitely not happy that Trump that Trump lost. But I think at the end of the day, if not Bolsonaro, certainly the other people around him, certainly the military officials around him, recognise that they need to continue having a good relationship with the United States. So I wouldn't anticipate any sort of change or rupture anytime soon because Brazil's getting increasingly isolated as well. Under Bolsonaro, we've seen this almost like withdrawal from the rest of the world, you know, apart from the US and maybe the UK. And even in Latin America, we've, we've seen left-wing victories, you know, Bolivia with the elections last year. Ecuador, it looks like the socialists will be returned to power. You, of course, have Cuba, Venezuela, Mexico and Argentina are both left-wing too. They need the United States, um, at least the Brazilian elite does. He might have been isolated by many countries, but what damage has he done to the people? Well, particularly once he won the election, he essentially abolished most environmental regulations. That was a direct attempt to lure companies, multinational corporations and domestic corporations to exploit the Amazon, whether it be for logging, whether it be for cattle, whether it be for soybean production, doesn't matter. And it worked. The first massive wave of fires that took place in Brazil, that was largely caused by corporations coming in, cutting down the forest, burning the forest, clearing land for their commercial exploits. Now, not only is this having a, a devastating impact on, particularly on regional cities like in, in the Amazon and, and what have you, and, and of course on the indigenous communities. You know, indigenous land has been invaded, indigenous leaders and activists have been killed by these loggers or by the mercenaries that they hire. This can't actually be stressed enough. It, it's a state of war in the Amazon at the moment. You have indigenous people fighting for their lives and fighting for their land against these, mercenaries, these corporate mercenaries um, that are more than happy to kill them. 
they're more than happy to kill Indigenous people um, if it means that they get their paycheck. So it is, lit- it is literally a war zone out in the Amazon at the moment. And of course, you know, you have the usual impact on, on particularly poor Brazilians uh, when you introduce neoliberal policy, particularly after quite progressive and things under the workers' party, brutal type of shock therapy when you when you cut all of that spending. Uh, so poor people have really suffered. Poverty has increased. Extreme poverty has returned for the first time since the workers' party was ousted, which is just absolutely shameful. But of course, the main thing currently that I would say that the worst impact is, of course, coronavirus. The central government, at least, has no comprehensive plan. They have no basic plan even, and they have let the virus run rampant. Some states, particularly in the northeast, where which are Workers' Party states, have tried to stem this this growth of oh, this spread of, of, of COVID-19. But they're also the poorest states that have the fewest resources. So that's it's been a doubly difficult task. Brazil was the first, the the only other country actually since the United States um, last week to pass 300,000 deaths. There's oxygen shortages in almost every um, Brazilian hospital. Uh, it's been described by, by experts as the worst medical crisis in Brazil's history. Now, that is significant. They, they estimate that in the next few weeks, people are going to just have to be taken off life support and off oxygen and just going to have to be let to die. There's not enough space and they're going to need to keep on accept, accepting people because of how rampant the virus is, how rampantly it's spread. And of course, you have particularly gruesome case, case studies. For example, Manaus, uh, the Amazonian city. It's, it's a large Amazonian city now, um, but it was a COVID hotspot. It was the, the breeding ground for one of the COVID variants, for the Amazon variant. You have like these massive football field sized graves these massive unmarked graves where bodies have just been dumped and coffins have just been dumped. It's, it's absolutely horrific. And of course, uh, Manaus has a large, not only a large indigenous population, but a large Afro-Brazilian population. And these are, of course, the people who um, historically suffered from, from a lack of um, education and healthcare and access to these vital services. Under Bolsonaro, and particularly in the times of COVID, it's just been taken to another extreme. What's the prospect of getting rid of Bolsonaro in the elections next year? This is the thing, and this and this will be this will be a big test for the Workers' Party. So, um, as I said, Lula's corruption charges have been thrown out. He's a free man, completely free. He can run for politics again if he chooses. He hasn't yet indicated whether or not he is going to be running for the presidency. He's hinted at it. He he gave a few speeches. His first speech after coming out of jail, he said, you know. Bolsonaro is, in essence, committing a genocide, those were his words, against the Brazilian people, not, not against one particular group. Everyone is suffering. And he has said that there needs to be a radical change, an actual sense of leadership, an actual sense of structure and order and a program to get Brazil out of this crisis, if that's even possible at this point. So he's essentially stopped just short of confirming his candidacy. I think he will. I think he's recognised that he's, I mean, quite frankly, he is the man that, that Brazil needs. He's the man... The only man that has that has the base, you know, the support, the visibility, the track record, and I think the competence to get Brazil out of this crisis, or at least mitigate it. They've already started conducting hypothetical polls on this. Lula would be expected to win with um, a 15% margin. That's quite a considerable margin over Bolsonaro. Obviously, don't trust the polls too much, but it's an indication that that he would that Lula would comfortably win. Bolsonaro. Look, I think he's running, to be perfectly honest, I think he's actually running out of his usefulness for, for the Brazilian elite. I don't think they were expecting him to be as erratic and as incompetent with, with COVID-19 as he has been 
we've even seen some business leaders actually distance themselves from him. We've seen some of the right-wing coalition partners actually distance themselves from Bolsonaro, particularly after the local elections in Brazil earlier this year, um, where his coalition had a series of embarrassing losses. In fact, uh, the Bolsonaristas, as they're called, lost in most cities and most councils, trying to now turn to some sort of more moderate type of leader. Bolsonaro will definitely run next year. The military still supports him, as far as I know. And that's the other issue that we need to keep in mind. Is there going to be election in 2022? Because the military has proven itself capable um, in the past with the dictatorship of doing away with democracy when it's convenient. Given the gravity of this crisis, given the fact that Lula uh, has a good chance of returning to power, and, and given the military's intimate links to Bolsonaro, there is, some, there is some tension there too. Given all of these factors, look, I wouldn't rule out uh, some sort of military intervention or some sort of military takeover next year. I really hope that doesn't happen. Some members of the military, um, perhaps the more sensible ones, the more pragmatic ones, who actually have some sort of long-term plan for Brazil might actually welcome Lula because he's actually going to, you know, get Brazil back on track and he's actually going to restore some sort of stability to Brazil. That's definitely a concern, the military. And, of course, the United States there with Biden. Um, we know the Democrats are, are an explicitly interventionist party, particularly with Latin America, even more so than the Republicans. They have a history of it. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we see some sort of U.S. meddling uh, against Lula again. That's what happened in the 2018 election. And we also know that Obama and the CIA were involved in the car wash scandal that got uh, Dilma Rousseff impeached. They provided the uh, quote-unquote evidence the non-existent evidence that the judges used to convict them. And one of the judges even said, you can take the CIA for this conviction. That's a quote from Dolanyol, one of the Supreme Justices. There's, there's a lot of factors that, that, that make next year's election uncertain. All of, all of those, those issues should, should not obscure the fact that there is, for the first time in a long time, a lot of hope in Brazil, I think. Lula's convictions being overturned you know, has shown how rotten this, this last you know, six or so years. And now that he's free... His support base is still strong. The Workers' Party is still is still kicking. There's definitely cause for concern, but there's also cause to be optimistic. Thanks so much, Sasha. Not a problem. That was the second part of my interview with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis about the history and the present situation in Brazil. That interview was recorded before the recent upheaval in the top echelons of the armed forces, so I'm sure there'll be lots more to come in the near future. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. It's been 30 years since the Royal Commission released its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Things have actually got worse and there's still no justice. Come along to the National Day of Action. Stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black Lives Matter. Saturday the 10th of April, 1pm on the steps of Parliament House, Melbourne. Join us in the streets to demand justice and self-determination. See you there.
behind these prison walls. There's a man who's won awards for the work that he has done. Tune in at 9.30am Thursdays to hear a special series, Home Run for Julian. Join James Brennan as he tracks the campaign to bring Julian Assange back to Australia, starting on the 18th of March. This special four-part series will feature interviews from Julian's dad, John Chipton, and other tour participants. Follow the convoy from Melbourne through regional towns in New South Wales and Victoria and back to Melbourne. Thursdays, 9.30 till 10am. Home run for Julian on 3CR. Is someone who is a hero to whistleblowers everywhere. Welcome to Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Bob, over many programs we've talked about Monsanto and glyphosate. Today it's another herbicide. Paraquat, and it's come to the attention of the mass media or the mainstream media due to a whistleblower. Yes, exactly. Somebody who worked for the company for 28 years has blown the whistle on them. Not that that would have really fixed the problem. Paraquat is so um, toxic that people have been using it to suicide and it's been uh, causing health havoc among uh, the users of this substance. Still... um, registered in Australia for various uses, but banned in Europe. Australia's behind the times again on uh, chemical regulation. And I think that's that's the story. The scientists in question tried to uh, get an emetic put into paraquat formulations so that when you tried to commit suicide with it, you would throw up. But of course, that wouldn't fix the basic problem, would it? It's all working around the edges. The stuff should have been banned decades ago. But our Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority here in Australia has been commissioning various reports, the first in 2003, reviewing Paraquat. And over the years, um, they've updated the various reports, 2009, 2014, and still it's not banned here. And it's about time that it was. It's a herbicide, so it's the killing weeds, a bit like the um, Roundup that you mentioned in uh, In opening, of course, Roundup and glyphosate are now known to be carcinogenic. The case in the USA by a groundskeeper against Monsanto and Bayer, who now now owns Monsanto, has finally been settled. The final decision by Monsanto and Bayer was that they wouldn't appeal any further. They've appealed and appealed. They got the um, award driven down to 20.6 million. They're leaving it at that. So the groundskeeper, Dwayne Johnson, is getting $10.3 million for actual damage done and another $10.3 million punitive damage for, for the reason that uh, Monsanto lied for over 30 years about the toxicity and carcinogenicity of its, uh, of its chemical. So the jury was very upset about that. The case is finally settled. But meanwhile, we hear that... Uh, In Europe, where the argument is still very hot indeed and uh, activists are trying to get uh, glyphosate banned, but the companies are fighting back, the companies secretly commissioned research a couple of years ago and it's now come to light that they were the backers of research which said that uh, Roundup was essential to managing natural environments in the United Kingdom. 
And the interesting thing there is that the Invasive Species Council, which is an Australian group, came out about a month ago with a very, very similar report uh, saying that having glyphosate available is essential for exotic weed management in Australia. It's going to be interesting to see in the end whether that research was also um, quietly funded by the companies that certainly singing the same tune. So it, it's sad that um, the Invasive Species Council, which is uh, a not-for-profit non-government organisation like ourselves, is singing the company's tune and saying we've got to have glyphosate if we're going to manage weeds in Australia. So it's still the same sorry mess that it always was, Jan. A terrible situation in the current review of the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority and the Agrochemical Regulations is really no better. They've put out their draft report for comment, received over 80 submissions, most telling them that their proposal's not up to snuff, uh, but we'll see what happens, what the government does. Just go back to Paraquat for a moment. How many countries have banned it and for what reasons? Well, it's generally been because of its toxicity and, of course, Europe itself, which has um, got a ban, is 26 countries. So that's a good beginning. I don't know the detail of where it's banned elsewhere, but it's still widely used in Australia. And that's, I think, of most local concern. It's here that we should get rid of it so that that toxic chemical um, on farms and in our food supply, the residues in our food supply are finally phased out after nearly 20 years of review. It's about time the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority made up its mind and got on with banning it totally. That's what we're pushing for. But of course, as I mentioned, there is a review of the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority going on at the moment. In February, they put out their draft report it's been comprehensively rejected. There's now um, a coalition of community groups led by the National Toxics Network and including gene ethics, but a number of other scientists and uh, people uh, who are concerned about um, these synthetic chemicals, including farmers and farmers groups, saying that uh, really the proposals to update the regulatory scheme on agricultural and veterinary chemicals, it's a broken system. But the main thing that, the, uh, that these reviewers are proposing is another level of bureaucracy on top of what we already have, another failed system. They're proposing to have a commissioner uh, who would have a bureaucracy to really take over many of the decisions that the APVMA, the pesticides people now make, really a disaster. The proposals, for instance, um, would fast-track new chemicals um, that have been approved overseas into the Australian system with minimal assessment and regulation here. Quite rightly, the National Farmers Federation, like ourselves, has pointed out, yeah, but what about Australia's unique environments? What about our different agricultural practices and systems of management? Bringing new chemicals in without assessment, that's basically deregulation would be totally unsatisfactory. And when we put it to the reviewers that if they did set up such a system, what about banning all the chemicals that are banned overseas? Of course, we got a great big silence. There's no way they would be banning things banned overseas, as they should. 
if it's going to be a fast track for chemicals into the system, then it should be a fast track for chemicals out of them as well. Chemical regulation should be a two-way street. And at the moment, it's one way in and uh, no exits because the APVMA, as I said, has virtually banned nothing that's being used here. And it's about time that we had a regular review and reassessment system. We want chemicals re-registered every 15 years. Um, in 2014, a system to uh, re-regulate, re-register and reassess every agricultural chemical had been set up by the Gillard government and was scuttled by Barnaby Joyce and the Abbott government. And I think that system really should be reinstated. It's in action in uh, Europe where it's um, a review every 10 years of all of these toxic chemicals. Even in the USA, which is a very deregulated environment, they're requiring all agricultural chemicals to be reviewed and re-registered every 15 years. We need the same system here and we need it urgently. Are you saying, Bob, that there's hundreds of chemicals registered here in Australia who can just keep on producing forever? It doesn't matter that they're banned in other countries. There's no law that says they have to go. Exactly. Of course, APVMA claims to be reviewing them, but of course it does it on an ad hoc basis. And this review of the APVMA would really reinforce the same system. So the new commissioner that they propose, the APVMA itself, would be the only ones could actually propose chemicals for review. Community groups like National Toxics, for instance, bringing forward first-class evidence from overseas that something's toxic is not sufficient in the regulator's view to trigger a reassessment. And that's unsatisfactory. What we want is a regular review not at anybody's discretion. It would be in the law, and you'd have to do it every 15 years. Some of these chemicals have been in Australian on Australian farms in, in our food supply for up to 50 years. Many from the last century were approved on the basis of very shonky industry-generated uh, information. They just have to be reviewed. It's, uh, there's no two ways about it that... Uh, we have to get those toxics out of our system. We should be alerted by evidence from overseas, like the deregulation of glyphosate, which is now going on in many countries and many regions around the world. And yet, still we have our regulator sitting there saying there is no basis for reassessing this chemical, just singing the industry's tune all the time. It's not satisfactory. It won't do any more. We're demanding action. Well, apart from the detriment to or possible detriment to our health, what happens when our exports land in another country and they find residues of chemicals that they've got banned in their countries? They send them back. And, and that's really what um, producers here are now confronted with. Many countries have zero tolerance for a whole raft of chemicals that are still registered in Australia. The grain handlers are starting to get, get pretty nervous. Um, for instance, last year they set up in Western Australia, the cooperative bulk handlers uh, set up a system for barley for brewing, which has got zero tolerance for Roundup because the brewers, especially in Asia, said 
there's no way we're going to sell beer to our um, customers that's got Roundup residues in it. CBH was responsive, the, the cooperative bulk handlers that is the main cooperative buying grains uh, from farmers in WA. And now barley for brewing is not allowed to have any Roundup used on it at all. And that's the kind of um, uh, system that we we need for all of these chemicals. We've We've got to be moving in the direction of taking notice of what's happening around the world and get into line, use the precautionary principle and say, if somebody else knows this is bad, well, it's going to be bad in Australia as well. It's going to be bad for farmer and farm worker health, and it's going to be bad for the residues in the food supply as well. And it's also, of course, going to be a market loser if our shipments overseas and something like 75% of our broadacre grains are exported into commodity markets around the world then we're going to start getting shipments either downgraded or sent back. And that can't be um, uh, very helpful either. There's been the debate in South Australia for quite a while now. And last year, the government of South Australia, the Liberal government, said that they were going to lift the ban on, on GM crops. You maintain now that the minister didn't actually tell the truth about the consequences can you explain? Minister David Basham did lift the ban on genetically manipulated crops, and uh, so farmers are now readying themselves to buy GM canola seed. It'll probably be planted within the next um, few weeks. But, of course, Basham was saying there'll be no premium for staying GM-free. That is, there'll be no discounts on the canola that uh, is harvested from the genetically manipulated varieties. Well, Farmers now should know that the current quote from the grain handlers is, if you grow GM canola and you sell it to us, you'll get $45 a tonne less than you um, will get for your GM-free varieties. That's a very hefty impost when you're selling a tonne of grain for around $500 and you've got an impost of $45 if it's GM. But the minister and the industry, the, the grain producers, South Australia, the industry representatives who were pushing to get the GM ban lifted said, oh, no problem, there'll be no discounts. Well, already, even before the season begins, even before there's any harvest, uh, the grain handlers are saying $45. That's what the discount will be. Of course, there's no protection for farmers either from the fact that they now bear the liability. If they grow GM canola and it contaminates their neighbour, the companies make sure that in their contracts for the sale of the seed, the liability is transferred onto the farmers. So it's a double whammy for them. They also have to segregate. They have extra segregation costs. Um, the seed costs more. Uh, they have to pay a technology user uh, fee, the transport, because it has to be segregated during transport to the silos uh, also costs them more. South Australian farmers are now discovering what Victorian and West Australian and New South Wales growers already knew. There are very substantial discounts for any GM crop that's grown. You get no real benefits. It doesn't yield anymore. You can just spray Roundup more often and at higher doses over your crop without killing it in order to try and get better weed kills. But the consequence of that, of course, is that 
after you've been using Roundup for a while, the weeds will start becoming resistant, the chemical will become useless or marginalised, and uh, you'll have to start spraying other heavy-duty chemicals like the paraquat or mixtures of chemicals onto your fields in order to kill those exotic weeds, which, of course, organic growers and regenerative farmers manage without chemicals at all. So it's about time that the conventional farmers woke up. GM and synthetic chemicals are not going to save them. They're being more and more marginalised by the companies that own and control the system. And it's about time that we got government spending research and development resources on supporting organic and regenerative farmers and the transition of the conventional farmers into those more sustainable systems because that's the system for the future. You're talking about crops, but what about the the huge wine industry in South Australia? What are they saying? Well, they finally, (laughs) at the 11th hour, of course, realised that uh, their reputation, their high reputation for great wines uh, was at stake when the genetic manipulation of canola initially, but also potentially grapevines, was in in the debate. Uh, However, it was too late to head off the lifting of the ban. And we are now saying to the wine industry and also to the 11 local councils that wanted to remain GM-free, a bit of GM canola is going to be grown this year, but it wouldn't be impossible to go GM-free again after the election in March 2022. So we're now entering into discussions uh, with the Labor Party that sold out, unfortunately, to allow the ban to be lifted. Uh, We've got allies within the Labor Party in South Australia, the former minister, uh, for instance, who is still very passionate about this issue, uh, and saying to them, hey, guys, how about re-adopting your GM-free policy and taking it to the 2022 election. So we're engaged in that discussion. We're going to meet the shadow minister and um, the main advocate for GM Free, the former minister, in a couple of weeks' time, be moving that debate forward. I think we could get them to do it. Um, I think it would be a political plus for them. Let's hope that that uh, campaign will go well. And what's the, the Liberal government in New South Wales doing about this issue? Yes, well, they've just um, given up uh, (laughs) a good policy position as well. The situation in New South Wales has been that they had a moratorium on the growing of GM crops, but, of course, uh, that moratorium also allows exemptions. So cotton, for instance, has been exempt since 2000 when a little cotton was grown in New South Wales and gradually the area of cotton has grown. And then in 2010... They allowed the growing of Roundup-tolerant, genetically manipulated canola as well under an exemption from the existing law. The critical thing now is that the stupid minister is um, giving up his discretion to say no, to decide for the future uh, whether or not a crop could be grown, a GM crop. That option of uh, saying yes or no when a new GM crop comes along Uh, is set to be gone from July 1 this year. We're saying to the minister, hey, look, minister, you've got the discretion, uh, as all states did, to uh, review on marketing and trade grounds any new GM crop that came along. 
The Canberra-based Office of Gene Technology Regulator, of course, looks at the environmental issues, looks at the public health issues, and then generally gives a tick to any genetically manipulated crop, animal or microorganism that happens to come along. But the states have this power to um, run a review saying, is this a good idea on marketing and trade grounds? And what the New South Wales Minister is doing is basically giving up that option, giving up the option of uh, saying, is this good or bad from a trade and from a marketing point of view? And you could easily imagine that GM wheat, for instance, which would be absolute dynamite for markets, might come along in the future. In fact, this debate was had almost 20 years ago. There was such strong rejection of the idea of genetically manipulated wheat in the early 2000s that in 2004, Monsanto, which was the main leader in the market then, cancelled all its GM wheat research. There had been some field trials. Some of that field trial material turned up in commercial fields in 2013, damaged trade with Asia. Uh, several shipments were sent back. Farmers lost hundreds of millions of dollars as a result of that GM contamination. And the public purse is still cleaning up that um, problem in the Western USA, in Oregon, uh, Washington State, and even in Canada. Some of it ended up in Canada, and they're cleaning it up there now. The minister in New South Wales won't any longer be able to say no to GM wheat. He foolishly is giving up his discretion, and it just defies belief, really, that he would do it. That's what they're doing at the moment under pressure from people like CropLife, which is the peak body of the agrochemical industry. Their, their members, uh, 16 corporate members, own, uh, make and market 85% of all the chemicals. So CropLife acts as the mouthpiece, puts its heat on governments, gets them to give up their options. They, incidentally, those same companies, own and control 95% of the genetically manipulated crop plants and other organisms in Australia as well. For the moment, the New South Wales government is throwing itself open to a trade and market disaster that it doesn't need to invite. You know, it could just stay as it is, keep its discretion, and if it wants to, to give discretion, uh, to give um, exemptions under its existing law when new GM crops and other organisms come along. It's just very foolish policy making, but of course, governments, particularly the Liberal governments, it seems, are just selling out to industry wherever possible. They're deregulating, really sacrificing the public interest and certainly not acting according to the precautionary principle, which is what they should be doing. But what's the point, really, if a certain number of countries, and I believe there are a lot, refuse to take GM crops or the product of GM crops, what are they going to do with it? Well, what they're doing in, the, in relation to genetically manipulated canola, for instance, is they've managed to negotiate an industry agreement that they've got wriggle room. So in the case of that, there's 0.9% allowance for contamination, and that's how they get away with it. They're also selling a lot of these GM crops into biofuel production these days. Biofuel is big in Europe, uh, in North America, where vehicles running on ethanol, a big part of the market. 
uh, an animal feed, of course, is another one. So most of the GM soy, corn, canola, and cotton seed, which is produced, goes into either animal feed or biofuels production, not into the human food supply directly. That's how they work around it, giving themselves wriggle room with um, allowable levels of, um, of contamination as well. So, for instance, in Australia, um, vegetable oils, starches and sugars are exempt from any labelling on the processed food supply, and they also have a wriggle room of 1% for a, what they call adventitious contamination, which means accidental. But, of course, the industry uses it routinely to allow themselves to put GM into the food supply without any label on the product. It's industry ahead of the public interest all the time on agricultural toxics and on genetic manipulation. And we continue to work with many other groups. And I think on the toxics, we might just might make a little bit of progress. The shadow minister in the Labor government federally, Joel Fitzgibbon, had a half and walked off recently. So he's been the main urger on the agriculture and veterinary chemicals and would always cave in to the Liberal governments. Now there's an opportunity, I think, with the new um, ministry, shadow ministry, to maybe get some movement there. So you keep living in hope. You keep campaigning and advocating. That's what you can do, really. And I think we're um, getting, with the movement to organics and regenerative farming, we're getting more and more people out on the land saying, I've had enough of this. It's costing me hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy synthetic chemicals every year to just pollute my place, try valiantly to control weeds and so on. Now, the, the new ideas about having cover crops and planting into fields which have cover crops that have kept the weeds at bay anyway are the kinds of things that are starting to be adopted and accepted. And I think... Ultimately, the community will prevail and say, we want organic, we don't want synthetic chemicals in our food, uh, we do want rural communities to clean up their act and just get off the chemical treadmill. Well, just briefly and finally, Bob, there was a bit of sanity in Tassie. Oh, yes, yes. Well, that's the bright spot on the genetic manipulation front, of course. Tasmania, unlike South Australia and the rest of them, see that. GM-free is the way to be. You can get premiums. Uh, you can sell your product as clean and green and really mean it. And so Tasmania has GM-free policies. Uh, their Liberal government um, has been, along with the Labor and the Greens, accepting of that. They're an island state, of course, which puts them in a unique position. But so is Australia an island state. <laughs> we could have done it um, across the whole continent. But... They're staying GM-free. GM is only actually about 1% of all agriculture in the rest of Australia anyway. It's a very, very small part of the whole agricultural industry. They have, um, just to protect themselves further, recently introduced new legislation because one of the new gene editing techniques was deregulated by the federal government. It won't be any longer notified and assessed by the Office of Gene Technology Regulator. So Tasmania has stood up and said, okay, guys, you've deregulated it for the rest of Australia, but you're not bringing it here 
under any circumstances. And I think that shows real commitment, real fortitude. Tasmania will lead the way, along with the ACT, which, of course, remains GM-free permanently. And uh, the Northern Territory has got a little bit of field trialling there, and there's talk of GM cotton. But some parts of Australia are still saying no, and that's what we have to nurture and um, build on. Good o. Thanks, Bob. A pleasure to talk again, Jan. And we do this every month, a talk with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And do have a look at their webpage and their Facebook page to learn more about the great work that they do. 3CR. Now here's something different. The Heatherdale Bowls Club in Mitcham is offering tuition with equipment supplied for singles, couples and all family members to learn the game. You can play whether you are 9 or 90. It's fun and it's free. They are located in Heatherdale Road, Mitcham, just up from the Manhattan Hotel in a picturesque parkland area. Their website is hrbc.org.au or just ring Elise on 0409 258 645. That's 0409 258 645. A 3CR supporter. There's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. JobKeeper ended at the end of March and the figures of those who will struggle in the near future is huge. Estimates up to 1 million people. Today we look at who benefited, who didn't benefit, and how many, in a sense, milked the system. And I'm talking about the the millionaires and the billionaires and what the future holds. I'm speaking with retired public servant and lifetime unionist, Jim McElroy. How successful do you believe it was? Well, I think... You know, one thing you can say about JobKeeper, it, it did succeed in lessening the burden on on a whole section of the working class and uh, and their families, and um, it prevented an absolute cliff going over a cliff like it would have been like the 1930s depression rather than um, even the global financial crisis, as far as I could see. There was whole sections of industry would have would have completely collapsed. So. 
I think it's quite interesting that, you know, that it did maintain the incomes of many workers. One criticism is that, is that it was a contradiction in the fact of it being a form of a subsidy to business, you know, with very little accountability. However, you know, I suppose one thing has been pointed out, that it was a remarkable thing for a Conservative government, the Morrison uh, country, uh, National Party Coalition, to adopt what effectively was a Keynesian policy. That is, um, the, the ABC's business editor, Ian Verinder, pointed out, JobKeeper at first glance looks like a scheme lifted straight from the text of the much-reviled John Maynard Keynes. <laughs> You know, but we are now seeing, you know, a lot of the shortcomings uh, of, the, of the scheme coming forward. Next question is, how fair was it? It had its problems, first of all, in the, in not so much what people actually received and so on, which was quite reasonable in many ways, but who got left out. So, of course, it was not a universal job supplement and casual workers, overseas students, temporary visa holders, all the sections of the economy that were not officially, you know, not uh, necessarily for Australian citizens and so on, they were left out of it. And that caused immense hardship. We know the problems that overseas students face, that the universities were closed too, and now their only source of income was taken away. So, it, yeah, this, this tremendous hardship was suffered by them. And many casual workers who didn't, into the you know rather narrow uh, confines of the policy didn't get JobKeeper. You know that was a that was a problem. And then you have the millionaires and the billionaires, many of them who did very nicely. Thank you. Well, that's right. There's plenty of evidence that has come through that uh, the um, many ASX, that is um, stock exchange listed companies, the top companies you know, received JobKeeper quite happily, but and continued to make profits. In fact, some of them had record profits. So one of the figures that was disposed in the publication New Daily said that um, there were 60 uh, stock exchange listed companies which disclosed receiving JobKeeper and other handouts. They received a combined profit over the past 18 months of $8.6 billion they funneled more than $3.6 billion into dividends to investors since last April. They paid back just $72 million to the public purse, and they paid out $20 million in bonuses to executives. So this is an anomaly in the, in the existing JobKeeper program, which should be looked at. We've seen coverage of some of the major companies that specifically um, have refused to pay back JobKeeper, even though they've made substantial profits. That includes like property developers like Mervac and Lendlease, retailers like Harvey Norman, and even Crown Casinos, which is, you know, pretty much on the nose at the moment. They're not giving any of the JobKeeper back. So any future development of the program should definitely include much tighter restriction. And in fact, I will mention that the Labor Party, there's a, there's a report that the Labor Party is calling for an extension of JobKeeper, especially into particular industries, you know, like um, the, the tourist industry and so on, which and entertainment industry and so on, that it has been particularly hard hit. But that there should be restrictions on companies that continue to make huge profits just pocketing JobKeeper and, and actually hand, handing it out to their shareholders. When you say future developments of the program, what are they? 
Oh, well, at the moment, they're nothing. That is the key issue that is, uh, you know, being raised by various you know, forces at the moment. The ACTU has pointed out that over one million workers face a very uncertain future without the JobKeeper wage subsidy, and it, which has prevented catastrophic job losses. But they are quoting the figure of 150,000 people facing losing their job because of the ending of JobKeeper. That is going to be very, very both cruel, and this is a quote from ACTU President Michelle O'Neill, both cruel and counterproductive to our economic recovery. We need money in the hands of working people so they can spend it. Michelle O'Neill points out this will not only hurt working people, but also small businesses, many of which are struggling to recover. Moreover, women are overrepresented in the industries most reliant on JobKeeper and will be disproportionately impacted by the cut. The ACTU and other forces are calling for an extension of JobKeeper specifically to industries that have continued to be uh, very badly affected by COVID, even the stage where it's starting to be uh, overcome. Mind you, the current situation in Brisbane shows that everything is up in the air, everything is transient and that COVID can make a comeback very at very short notice. Yeah, the, the need for a JobKeeper type of program is very much there and JobKeeper should not be abolished. It should probably be uh, expanded and, and adapted maybe to the new conditions. Has the federal government responded to these issues? So far, they don't seem to have um, taken any, you know, any significant move. I mean, they have introduced somewhat anomalous schemes like Aviation Keeper, which basically could be described otherwise as Qantas Keeper, or even you might say Alan Joyce Keeper, because it's basically going to be a subsidy to the airline, irrespective of even though massive amounts of subsidy have already been handed over to Qantas even compared to some of the, the smaller airlines, it's, they've sucked up a lot of uh, uh, public funding. So Aviation Keeper will you know, be another subsidy to, to Qantas. But uh, as far as keeping the jobs of uh, workers, the Transport Workers Union has, has criticised it. You know, there is talk, but I, I, I don't know of specific programs that have been adopted yet of help to areas like tourism and in particular I note that the Queensland government's calling for assistance to the northern Queensland tourist industry, especially around Cairns and so on, because we're basically really hundreds of thousands of not only individual jobs but but small businesses are, you know, in danger. I will mention that there's an organization called Small Business Australia which has actually estimated a much higher figure of job losses, that up to 500,000 jobs are at risk, that many, many small businesses will not be able to continue without JobKeeper because that's the only way they can actually fund the, you know, the small number of employees that they do have. This um, whole program, when you look at it, something like $90 billion of public funds has been spent on JobKeeper since it was introduced last April. But the, you know, a, a period of, of uh, scaling back has taken place over, over time. The fortnightly payments began at $1,500 and then ended up at $1,200 at the end of September. And then in early January, payments were cut to $500 a week for those employed for 20 hours or more, 325 for those working less. Originally, the scheme covered something like 3.6 million 
uh, people, and but it's now less than a third of that. Huge job to be done, and the COVID crisis is not over, and the economic crisis associated with COVID is not over. We really need to look at an extension of this scheme, and um, it's becoming much more of a a public scheme rather than a subsidy to big business. There should be clear-cut guidelines on any future extension of JobKeeper to make sure that the money is not funneled into profitable businesses and that it, um, it goes to the employees and helps to keep them afloat and also to small businesses which are very severely hit. And we could look at the, the idea of JobKeeper, which is specifically was aimed at the crisis around the pandemic, but let's start looking at a kind of a public job maker scheme which could uh, you know, be used right into the future. We should um, defend the practice of using public investment to guarantee jobs and campaign that these that, that investment be redirected towards, uh, you know, away from being a business subsidy towards an expansion of the public sector. And this could ensure that the jobs created and preserved are directed towards industries and projects that advance democratically determined social and environmental priorities instead of just the biggest profit-making companies like Qantas. And also, Jim, to pay decent wages. We've seen over many, many years how farming bodies and farmers get the backpackers and the visa holders and don't pay them properly. And there's not, I don't know how those people manage on what they do get. There's a big sort of uh, controversy in the media at the moment with, with some sections of the farming lobby saying that, oh, they can't get labour and, you know, because of the, uh, you know, because of no overseas um, students or, or migrant workers coming in at the moment because of the COVID restrictions, you know, they can't get labour and they're claiming that, you know, people in the city won't go out and work there. But there's plenty of evidence this is not the case. In many cases, paying really low wages and it's almost a kind of a form of slavery in some in some cases. Yeah, we have to create a situation where we can, uh, if some sections of the farming community are really in poor uh, economic situation and can't afford, you know, the wages, that needs to be tested and investigated, then the form of the job maker scheme, which could be an extension of job keeper, would be could be used to subsidise wages and for you know small farmers. I'm not talking about agribusiness, huge companies like that, but in the case of small farmers, if they can prove that they are in financial hardship, then we could extend the uh, idea in general of job maker into into that that field. Final words, Jim. Let's look at the two sides of job of the history of the job keeper. Number one, it was an absolute miracle <laughs> to coin a phrase relating to Scott Morrison that the government and let's be give some uh, credit to the unions and other forces where the government was pressured into setting up the job maker scheme. It was the it was the largest single investment, single public expenditure in the history of the country. Uh, the total of it of the expenditure last year is 130 billion, but 90 billion of that was uh, JobKeeper. I mean, this broke with the whole history of conservative governments of refusing to go into deficits and how we can't spend, you know, money on uh, public uh, goods and so on, and the market should take care of everything. So this was a break with that kind of philosophy and into the area of Keynesianism. 
And in fact, many people's jobs were saved in that way. So in that sense, it was a positive uh, scheme, but it had many, many shortfalls and negative aspects, such as not covering the casuals and the students and overseas workers and so on. And now, of course, they're declaring that it's over and that it's, it's finished. But I think really it's probably very timely for the unions and uh, the community in general to try and mobilise much more of a public campaign than we've seen so far to try to extend JobKeeper and keep it going, certainly in relation to areas of industry that can prove that they are in hardship. And uh, it, it could become a kind of a public job-making scheme directed in the area of creating green jobs and renewable you know, so that we can use it as a weapon to extend the green community and help with the just transition uh, from fossil fuel-based industries to green industries and also just to extend the public sector and, and, and try to take the strength of away from big business such as Qantas and all the others and start to revive our public industries instead of privatising them all the time. There's a potential here with the struggle to defend and extend uh, JobKeeper and the, its its small brother or sister job maker, which hasn't been very successful at all. Yeah, we could start looking at a, a program of job creation mainly in the public sector and towards green industries. And that could be part of the whole uh, shift of the economy to a democratically controlled, socially based economy. Thanks very much, Jim. No worries, Jan. And you've been listening to Jim McElroy, lifelong trade unionist and former public servant. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. The Independent Philippines Human Rights Probe was created in response to a UNHCR decision not to launch an independent international probe into human rights abuses in the Philippines. That was in October last year. Last month, the group submitted the first of three reports to the ICC in The Hague. And I spoke to Peter Murphy, who's the chairperson of that group. Peter, how was the report presented to the ICC? Oh, well, I sent an email to the, I think the person's called the prosecutor. So it's called the Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. 
Right now it's uh, Miss Fatou Bensouda, but she's about to step down in about a month's time and be replaced. But uh, you know, the, we know that the uh, investigation section of the uh, ICC has been looking at complaints against President Duterte for a couple of years, and they're about to make an announcement sometime before June 30 this year about whether to initiate their own investigation. That would be virtually announcing that they'll be issuing subpoenas and maybe issuing arrest warrants. So yeah, the ICC is a, wasn't the main target really of our report, Jan, but was one of the two or three you know, key in, international uh, points we wanted to reach with it. The other two being the United Nations Human Rights Council and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Secretary General of the Security Council. So we, we have communicated to all of them. What does the report contain? It's built around 36 uh, cases of violations of human rights. These cases are documented by witness statements and then the whole set of those facts uh, contextualised with other uh, information you know, that's well documented about the circumstances in which these uh, cases took place. These cover the war on drugs, uh, the murder of uh, political targets in the Philippines and the harassment of uh, other layers of active people in civil society and in the media and in, and in politics, that is, members of Congress, judges and so on. And it's a worldwide campaign, isn't it? You've had cooperation and membership for this group from many countries around the world? I think we, we would like more, um, Jan, but the, this uh, particular project is called the Independent International Commission of Investigation into Human Rights Violations in the Philippines. So it's all composed of people uh, outside of the Philippines. They're principally based in Europe, North America, Australia uh, and uh, Asia. So we, we haven't got South America and, and we've got one person from Africa. So, you know, it's a bit unbalanced, but, you know, we, we are hoping now that with the uh, value of this particular report, we will be able to get more eminent people involved in this from other countries as well. Still no joy from the Australian government on their connections with the Duterte regime? Guess it's complicated, as they say in DFAT. <laughs> so um, we've got, I think, a two-track uh, response coming from the Australian government, where people in the Department of Foreign Affairs are very much aware that Duterte is a big problem for them. They are not so aware that you know there's a sort of a deeper structural situation in the Philippines. Doesn't really matter who the president is; that uh, these things happen but they are very intense under President Duterte. So on the one hand, we have clear awareness and willingness to communicate at the UN, uh, at the Human Rights Council, and in you know very low-key way through the embassy in Manila uh, over particular incidents that, that do take place. But on the other hand, we've got the Department of Defense, which is, seems to be impervious to this discussion altogether. And... It's not clear you know, what they think they're doing, but uh, they present themselves as um, 
being engaged in the Philippines to counter terrorism. So they are giving quite a lot of money to the Philippine military and training a lot of officers from the Philippines military. There's sort of no apparent appreciation of the very, very serious offences against human rights conducted by these very same military units and some of the very same officers that Australia trains. And I think, you know, the budget papers of our government are also um, deliberately obscuring the level of engagement Australia's military has in the Philippines. So we don't really know how many military personnel are there. The numbers have ranged in the last couple of years, you know, up to 300 um, and down to like 30. But uh, I think you know, we could say that Australia's probably got more military engaged in the Philippines than there are in Afghanistan or Iraq. So that's, that should sober people up a bit. The uh, amount of money, the budget reports $9 million in uh, defence cooperation with the Philippines, but we know that it's probably more likely $50 million. And Australia is the second most important contributor to, to the Philippines military after the United States. It is a significant uh, relationship, and it's you know we, we can see from the Myanmar in situation right now, you know, it's a really uh, what would you say high risk to have this kind of relationship, and it it doesn't work, and it, it does not work when Australian office officials claim that we're engaged in training the Philippine military in the rules of war, the Geneva Conventions and human rights, it doesn't work, just like it hasn't worked in Myanmar. You might say that it would sober people up if they knew, but most people don't know, do they, the involvement of the Australian government with the military in the Philippines? That's right. It's very low-key. You know, Australian military is notorious for controlling media coverage of its operations. You can see from the Afghanistan war um, how negative this was in the end. Its impact on the soldiers themselves after they come back and the uh, cover-up of what's now being exposed as allegations of uh, crimes, war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by Australian special forces in Afghanistan. So with the Philippines, there was a significant boost in you know, military personnel from Australia there after the Marawi battle in 2017. And uh, there was a specific uh, training program, which was quite a large-scale one, where Australian troops provided urban warfare training to the Philippines Army. And they took the Sydney Morning Herald there, you know, in I think in like, uh, December 2018, and uh, more or less at the wrap-up of the program. And so there was a little bit of coverage of this. But that, that's all we've seen. And so, like, it's now nearly two and a half years later, there's been no further media coverage. <laughs> so how could the Australian people have a clue, you know, what's going on? And, and even in the broader terms, the Australian media has got so few correspondents in Asia, Southeast Asia, that it's impossible for and Australian eyes to be reporting, you know, the political and social dynamics going on in the country in which these atrocities are occurring. You know, it's partly to do with history that the you know, Philippines is seen as an American sort of zone of influence and therefore, you know, you'd have to go to the United States media and um, hardly any of that is 
it's coming back into Australia, you know, into our newspapers or radio and TV. But it has been said before that the, the United States is more open about what they're doing than Australia has ever been. I think that's also generally true uh, because of the, the character of um, media in the United States. It's such a bigger, much bigger place and they also have a much you know, more freewheeling and less inhibited uh, media culture. So uh, you know, there's a downside to that we've seen in the Trump era, but the, uh, the truth is more information is, is available from the media directly, you know, going to the Philippines, say, and there's also m more information available through the US Congress than we get through our Senate estimates and, and questions in Parliament and so on. What's been the reaction in the Philippines to your work? Okay, we got, I would say, more or less saturation coverage for this report um, in the Philippines media. So if the statistics are not a lifting at tips, but at least five of the main daily newspapers carried full reports, just positive accounting of what was uh, contained in, in our report, its conclusions and so on. And uh, more or less saying to their audiences that the Philippines government's got a case to answer and the international community's demanding it. And uh, you know, I myself got interviewed on a, the prime midday TV news, you know, the biggest one. Um, and it was a, uh, the second time that had happened to me. And the first time it was a more sceptical, you know, why, you know, the questions were, what's the point, you know, in doing what you're doing? No one really cares. Think, you know, questions like that. And uh, the second interview was far more serious and engaged, you know, acknowledging how bad the situation is. And um, even a little warning to me at the end that I should take care of myself. So there's that, and then radio. Uh, there was there was many um, reports there, and as well as that, we had you know U.S. public radio news doing extensive interviews, CNN and the BBC. So I think we we had both very strong coverage in Philippines and a little bit of coverage in the mainstream international media for our, our first report. So um, the Philippines government reacted by denigrating the commissioners. That is, they avoided any comment on the content of the report and tried to do a bit of character assassination on the individuals who have taken up the mantle, you know, to, to try to get this type of investigation done and reported. So, um, you know, I thought that was very feeble and in a way a sort of backhanded acknowledgement that they, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to say when all these facts actually are presented in a clear way. Now, of course, we, we put out the report on the 15th of March, and on the 7th of March, a large number of police and soldiers were deployed south of Manila and raided many homes, killed nine people pre-dawn, like dragged people out of bed and shot them. It was a very, very shocking for the Philippines themselves, you know, it was a big, of course, news story. So, so our report landed in the midst of that type of uh, context, and it's an undeniable situation that the state forces in the Philippines are harassing, killing, detaining unarmed civilians who criticise them, criticise the government. I guess the uh, Philippines government is doing more research on us right now and trying to figure out ways to 
somehow slow us down or, or discredit us. But uh, I don't think they can succeed in that. And um, we're about to initiate the work on another a second one of these reports we've got planned for this year. Um, I'm just hoping we've given heart to people in the Philippines who are under enormous pressure, you know, that they know they're not alone and that the international institutions are, are being informed <clears throat> and are willing to respond. We have to make that a stronger situation, um, but I think we're able to do that. I would have thought that the regime in the Philippines would have had more control over the media because you say that if they're actually supporting you, not the government. Well, they were reporting us. I think it was just, yeah, it was just fair, yeah, fair reporting. I wouldn't have thought that would have happened either. Okay, so there's, there is a lot of uh, cases of abuse of uh, journalists, uh, not just journalists, but their actual institutions. So, so the very biggest broadcaster, it's called ABS-CBN, had its license you know, not renewed last May, May last year. This took off free-to-air broadcasting for about 50%, you know, 50 of the population would watch that, that channel. That was a direct reaction to the fact that that network would critically report the war on drugs. That's what happens. It is what happens. The government will hit at its critics in whatever way they can. But there is still the veneer of, um, you know, democratic institutions. You know, there's not a wholesale shutdown of uh, independent media and only, say, government media being the only way for information to come out. It's not like that. Duterte's people, they really do vilify individuals they accuse all sorts of people in a wild, reckless way of being uh, terrorist supporters or terrorist financiers or communists or uh, all of these uh, epithets are designed to intimidate and discredit and uh, really make people change their behaviour, stop their behaviour altogether or reduce it. Yeah, it, it goes on, but, but there's still... Media. So, so for instance, the, the news program I was interviewed on is now broadcast on the internet, but people are still watching it in large numbers on their phones or uh, on their computers. The media people, even like it's a big business running a big network, they are obviously determined to, you know, kick on themselves and resist the pressures that come on them. So, yeah, you can still get this critical thing happening. And inside the, the government itself, they've got problems of, uh, as I said, really reckless behaviour. So uh, a, there's a general who is a spokesperson for a national task force. And the, it's a long acronym, but to, the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict, it's called. But basically this organises all the state agencies, including the police and the army, to target individuals at the local level. And then, unfortunately, they're not targeting people with weapons, you know, who are rebelling. They're targeting civilians who are organising farmers or women or trade unions um, or Indigenous peoples' organisations. And a lot of these killings, which we documented um, in this last year, have, have come through this national task force. The general in charge, his name is Parlade, he accused Miss Universe Philippines of being a communist terrorist, you know, it's like a beauty queen, simply because she said in the media that there had to be more attention paid to the poor during the pandemic. 
democracy, see what happens. Even other extreme right-wing type of figures in the government could not cop that and spoke out against that general. You know, the media, of course, spoke out against him. So they, they have got their own problems. And, of course, Duterte himself is given to extreme impulsive statements, which are very dangerous. And uh, he intends them to go into the media and be reported because he wants to intimidate people. But, of course, then the media can comment on, on that and, and criticise and condemn those things. So very recently, like I said, on March the 5th, on March the 7th, there were these raids south of Manila, raids that were organised by General Palade, and, and then nine people were killed on the 5th of uh, March. So just a few, two days before, President Duterte gave a speech in another part of the Philippines referring to the communist rebels, and he just, just said to his audience of soldiers and police, kill them all, don't worry about human rights, just kill them all. <laughs> of course, they got a lot of media coverage. Um, it's very chilling, massive embarrassment, I think, for you know the Australian government, the, even all the governments in the region that this is happening. Um, but they they are very reluctant to speak out. We you know we have to ask the question why why. Finally, Peter, how will your second report differ from the first one? The first one, as I said, was built on these particular 36 cases, and then there was another 15 very recent cases which were added on to it. The second report will interview people who are, we would consider like uh, expert witnesses to provide a, a higher level picture uh, about the economic and political circumstances which are leading to all of this violations of human rights. We also, in the first report, did not examine what's going on with Marawi City now and uh, the focus on Mindanao was light. And in Mindanao, there's a terrible lot of these violations taking place. So I think we'll, we'll have a focus on Mindanao as well, rather than just simply going at individual cases to make it, make our points. That's why it will be different. And, and of course, we, we know that, unfortunately, Duterte government is accelerating or expanding this repression. It's almost like if the president is criticised for, for killing civilians, his reaction is to kill some more civilians. So we know that we will have to deal with some new cases as well. So we'll do that. But I, I think that the, the report will be more analytical and provide a, a high-level picture of uh, the situation and perhaps where, where, again, the international community can engage. And just briefly, when will you know whether the ICC will take up your case? Well, they made an announcement in December that they would make the decision on this Philippines matter in the first half of 2021. So, you know, we've, we've already into the second part of the first half of 2021 from today. So I think um, I'm just hoping it comes soon. It's hard to know the ICC. Um, they're very sort of proper. They did explain to us that the COVID-19 pandemic uh, impacted on their staffing levels in 2020, and that slowed them down on everything. They're highly aware that it's been too slow, but they, I think, intending to make a decision. And in their statement in December, they, they really said there's good grounds to, to uh, believe that crimes against humanity have been committed in the Philippines. You know, we're very confident 
that there will be further action from the ICC and that it will be announced soon. Thank you, Peter. No, thank you very much, Jan. Peter Murphy, who's the chairperson of the Independent Philippines Human Rights Probe now at the ICC in The Hague. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.